Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity in the middle of the week to gather together to eat and to enjoy one another's company and to fellowship. Uh, Lord, we are excited to hear how the children and youth's classes will go and, and to hear from them afterwards of the things they learn of you. And, and uh, Lord, we look forward to spending time as well together. Uh, continuing our look at the Ten Commandments, taking a little bit of a, uh, a pause as we think a little more on the Second Commandment. So we ask that you might uh, help us to have clarity of mind, and, and uh, as we understand uh, what you're telling us, what you're teaching us, that we would uh, be able to apply that to our life, that we might glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, it's good to be back together, continuing our move through the Ten Commandments. We're taking a little bit of a semi-pause here, and uh, expanding on, or perhaps even applying the Second Commandment to our situation here at Christ Church, particularly when it comes to uh, corporate worship. And then we'll be back, Lord willing, to Third Commandment uh, when, you know, hopefully uh, next week. I'll start off with a little quote here from, uh, I think, a very helpful book, What Happens When We Worship, written by Jonathan Cruz. And uh, he begins this way, Worship is a supernatural event. Have you ever considered that? It's an obvious statement, really. An event in which we interact with a supernatural being must be, by definition, supernatural. Then why is it that we so often approach worship with a sense of boredom instead of astonishment, with yawns instead of awe, with resentment instead of reverence? Why is it that rather than seeing worship as a supernatural event, we clump it in with the other mundane things we have to get done during the week? Going to church gets the same check mark on the to-do list as going to the grocery store, doing homework. If I were to ask you what happens when you go to church, that is, what goes on during the actual worship service, how would you answer? Some people might answer, well, there's some preaching, a little praying, a lot of singing. Others may say, we read our Bibles, watch a presentation from the youth group, stand up at one point to shake everyone's hands, and so on. That's not what I mean. Those answers tell me the various elements that make up the service. My question is one that seeks to go beyond that. What are these elements for? What are they accomplishing? What happens when we worship? Something is happening when we worship. Something happens to us. Something happens between us and the people we worship with. And most importantly, something happens between us and in God. Many people hold to a spectator approach to worship. Church is somewhere you go to watch something. You might stand up here, or there, recite a line or two printed in the bulletin or shown on the screen. In that sense, you are participating, but by and large, the event is something to watch. This makes going to worship not much different from going to the movies or to a football game. Others hold to a club approach. Church is somewhere you go to hang around with like-minded people and do projects together. From this perspective, what goes on in church is not much different from what goes on at 4-H or the Girl Scouts or the local book club. But what goes on in the church's worship is different from these things. Going to worship is different from going to the cinema or the stadium. And it's different from attending a meeting of a local social club because worship, real, true, faithful worship, 
is supernatural. God of the universe appears and meets with his people. And by his sovereign and gracious power, he changes them. It's astounding. It's unlike anything this world could offer, and yet how easy it is to forget that something as spectacular as this is happening when we come to church. Makes me think about the, the quote that I semi-remembered correctly uh, that I had read in the past. I think a few weeks ago I mentioned it. Uh, when it was talking about how you know, this, this imagery, this, this understanding that even in, in the smallest of, of rural country churches or even small urban churches or large churches, whatever it is, but when worship happens, corporate worship amongst God's people, it's that picture of the supernatural event that's going on, this covenantal relationship that's happening and and the fact that when, when the pastor calls, when the pastor for God calls, as God is calling his people to worship, um, in this, this reading that I'm remembering, uh, there is the picture of at that moment that all of heaven comes down into that service. And it's this massive supernatural event, that covenantal relationship between God's people there and their God, but also the bigger picture and the realities of, of what are happening and how oftentimes um, we may not fully grasp for God does not open our eyes to see what all is happening, but, uh, but we can rest assured that mighty, mighty things are happening. God has promised to be with us. Uh, it is an amazing thing. It makes me also think about the New Testament where it talks about how uh, the angels uh, wondered appear into these things, talking about you know, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ earthly ministry, the redemptive history, the things that are being done to redeem the church, that God has done these things. And we read of the, the worship service in heaven from the church triumphant. Uh, we get pictures in Revelation, particularly not only of uh, the uh, church triumphant, but of the angelic host worshiping God. And um, so I hope that when we come and, and worship that we remember that, that uh, when I say things like, hey, this is the this really is the best day of the week. This is the, this is the best part of the Lord's day that hopefully you'll uh, agree with me and then not think that I'm just saying something, but, but I want us all to realize that reality. So much so that at some point I've been reading on and thinking through and dabbling with, at some point I'm going to do a more extended like class on worship. I may just do a recording, like a podcast type thing. I haven't figured out when to fit it in. I don't know, maybe Sunday night we could fit it in. It's gonna, we're going to be doing Ten Commandments for a little while, maybe after the Ten Commandments. At some point we're going to do it, though, because I think it's such a big deal. Um, I think we would all enjoy, benefit, and be encouraged by understanding more uh, about uh, particularly corporate worship and the means uh, of grace, what a big deal uh, it is. And that's why tonight we're, we're taking just a little bit of a stutter step forward as we're kind of applying the Second Commandment to corporate worship. All right, so Exodus 20, uh, verses 4 and 6, reading our second commandment again. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So we looked at the second commandment last time 
we were together, and we unpacked a bunch of this. Uh, but tonight, the big idea, what I want us to, to keep in mind is, uh, in obedience to the second commandment, Christ's church seeks to worship our triune God as he wants. That's kind of what we're going to be delving in tonight. That we are, by the best of our ability, we're seeking to worship God as he commands us to do that, which is the tie-in with the second commandment. Hopefully y'all can see the connection there. So we're just going to look at briefly understanding worship and then understanding corporate worship at Christ's church uh, itself. Last time we were together, we, we looked at the second commandment. Uh, we looked at the, the big idea for that was the second commandment requires God to be known and worshiped as he reveals in his word. So again, just applying that tonight. So understanding worship. First thing we need to understand about worship is everyone worships. Worship isn't something that just some people do. Worship isn't just something Christians do. Everyone who breathes worships. Worship is a natural aspect of uh, life, humanity. You look at history. There are no people who don't worship something. Even in states who, who do everything they can to eradicate religion, they are never able in that force seeking to eradicate religion. They are imposing the state that is, imposing itself, taking that place. And you end up with people that either worship the state or they're the selfites. You know, they worship selfism. It's all about me. Uh, those things take the place. There's no, no one, no place, no time in history that people do not worship something. Humans are created to worship. Um, if someone doesn't worship the triune God, they're going to worship something else. They're going to worship a false god. Uh, they're going to worship false philosophies. They're going to worship false idol- uh, idolog- <laughs> ideologies. Idolatry was in my mind, but ideology is what I wanted to say. Uh, people worship um, tons of things. Um, people worship pleasure. People worship power. Uh, people worship profits. Uh, and again, the biggest false worship, I think, is what I'm dubbing selfism, worship of self. That's the great one. I mean, even when Satan came into the garden and said, did God really say? The whole point there is putting doubt you know, does God love you? Does God really have your best interests at hand? Is God really sovereign? What's happening here? To buy into that, Adam and Eve had to accept that by asserting themselves to where they were more gripped by their understanding thoughts and desires than by submitting to God's. And so they were worshiping self, these selfites. Pride, uh, self as the idol, selfism, the idolatrous religion of worshiping and serving yourself. Uh, it takes many, many forms, um, from claimed atheism to, to seeking one owns, one's own glory, even within the, uh, the shell of Christianity. So that someone could, could use the name of Jesus, use the name of God to, to attempt to better themselves we see that sadly as you know, we're warned about wolves that not only come from without but that come from within. The way that people might use God's name to manipulate whichever way it is that they can accomplish what they want. And so in the name of God, this is, I mean, a scary thing to think of. But in the name of God, humans can then worship themselves but use God as 
as the lever to turn their own worship and others' attention to them. Uh, as scary as that is. But selfism, I think, is the largest false religion and false worship in the world. God uses uh, words in the Old and New Testaments of the scriptures of the Bible that specifically describe his worship. So he doesn't leave it up to us to try to figure out what does God really mean by, by worship. Like when God says, you know, worship me, what, is it, what does he mean? When, when he is, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, you'll remember the, uh, what we have here in the context of this, and back to the preface, when God pulls, delivers his people out of Egypt, he, he's telling them, you know, if you remember, Moses and Aaron go as the mouthpiece of God and tell Pharaoh that he needs to let God's people go out into the desert. But what was the, the primary thing he kept saying to Pharaoh? Let my people go that they can worship me. So there's something here. God is telling us what worship is. Well, the Hebrew word and the Greek word that we have in the scriptures, uh, those words, uh, what they mean when we look at the word worship, it says, gives us the uh, understanding of to bow down. God is saying to bow down to me. Bowing down to God, in essence, encapsulates worship. Bowing down before him. In both, uh, whether it's in, in our actual actions or our attitudes, uh, where our heart is at, is bowing down is what we see in the scriptures. Our cre- as uh, our creator, our creator, he's calling his creatures to bow down in submission, giving praise and glory to him. All right, so last week we discussed the regulative principle of worship. Y'all remember that? Kind of brought together the synopsis of the regulative principle of worship is uh, uh, God tells us in the Bible how uh, to worship him. Uh, I, you probably, like, you've already recalled, right, when I said that, you're like, oh, I remember the boss quote. I can see in your faces, everyone is like, oh, the boss quote. That's where Pastor John's going next. Well, if you remember, we, we read uh, together what Voss had to say about this. Uh, as Voss wrote, in our day and age, of course, he didn't write this currently. This was a little bit in, our, in the past. But in our day and age, with its tremendous emphasis on the dignity and freedom of man, this still rings true. And its corresponding neglect of the majesty and authority of God, the tendency is to hold that men may worship God as they please, or as the saying is, according to the dictates of their own conscience. And that sincerity is more important than truth or divine appointment. It is quite common today for people to hold that even the false worship of the heathen is acceptable to God, provided the worshipers are sincere. This whole notion is, of course, directly contrary to the statements of the Bible. And we can just go read the scriptures and see that that God actually holds... uh, his worship very high, very important to him. He is a holy God. He wants to be worshipped as he tells us to. Are we can go just back to, uh, I think we talked about this last time, but uh, if you want to think about it and look at how important God's worship is to him, you can go back and see um, Aaron's sons. Uh, we talked about them. Um, Nadab and Abihu off the top of my head, if I remember. They go to the first, the first, worship service as it was before God's people. They've been brought out. Things have been established. God has told them exactly how the, the priestly class is to function, exactly how they are to worship. And it is the first time to bring offerings and 
they get excited and decide they're going to do more. Like, that was good what God said, but we're really going to make this amazing. And God killed them. And then God told Moses to tell Aaron that I, I killed these these priests because they didn't they they violate what I said. I mean, we hear that today. Go back to that boss quote. You think that's crazy sincerity. That's what matters. But God's told us how He wants to be worshipped, and so we should, as we read in the scriptures, to bow down, bow down to Him, and. Submit to what it is he tells us that we might have the love in our heart for him, worship him as he desires to be worshiped. Westminster Confession. We've been looking at the catechism some, but we're going to touch on the confession tonight. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, summarizes what the Bible teaches regarding worship. And we read in the first paragraph, the first section to chapter 21, it tells us this, the summary of what the Bible says about worship. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart, with all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And there's multiple, multiple study passages that go along with that uh, that you can read. And one of the beautiful things about God telling us in his word how to worship him is that he doesn't just say, worship me and then expect us to figure it out, uh, which would be... A challenge, um, the noetic effect of sin because of the fall. I mean, we, we can't even we can't even properly think uh, in a in a righteous way. Um, so God lovingly tells us His creatures, "This is how I want to be worshipped. Worship me this way," and He gives us those things. Um, as one has written, Van Dixhorn uh, about this very thing. He, he writes, under the spotlight of our conscience, there is no hiding the truth about the existence of the invisible God. That's just Romans chapter 1. And we know in our conscience that we must worship him. However, it is scripture that teaches us that the only acceptable way of worshiping God is his way. It was after a discussion about worship and after a discussion about false teachers that the Lord told his old covenant people to do everything they were told Nothing more, nothing less than Deuteronomy 12.32. In other words, God institutes the practices of worship. We do not. It was because God had already given his word that Jesus was so critical of leaders whose worship was empty, who elevated the commandments of men as doctrines for the people. We read in in Matthew 15.9. God does not need us or our clever ideas, Acts 17.25. And neither does he need the worship we may devise in the hope of pleasing him. But the beautiful thing is that he loves us. And he tells us, hey, this, this is how I want you to worship me. He saves the old covenant people out of their bondage. And then he tells them how it is that they are to, to live in interaction with him, how they are to, to worship him. And we're seeing 
this as we work, move our way through uh, the Ten Commandments, Second Commandment in particular. So it shouldn't surprise us the sovereign creator, ruler, and sustainer of all things uh, would tell us, give us some direction, help us out that we might know how we can worship him um, so that we then can be blessed of his means of grace and that covenant relationship that we enjoy as his covenant people. Biblical worship is uh, about giving glory to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, biblical worship is distinct. Like There's nothing we do like worship, real worship, worshiping God, not, not false worship. There's nothing like genuine, true, biblical worship. Uh, it is... You know, most things we do, we think about, like we live in a world where everything's catching our attention, but it's more of like an entertainment type situation where people are, are trying to entertain us or to grab our attention so that they can sell us on something or, or whatever it might be. But, but biblical worship, I mean, it's a whole different world from what we're used to, even in the day of screens and, and everywhere. Every, you can't get away uh, from the uh, desires of someone trying to grab your attention. But there's a huge dichotomy between worship and entertainment. Worship is reverent, honor, and worth rightly given to God as he commands it to be given. Uh, whereas entertainment is something that occupies your attention and brings you uh, enjoyment. One of the, we think about that, in our hearts we can even be in the setting of biblical worship. But in our hearts we could just be running through the motions and watching and it. And it no longer is a covenant dialogue. It's no longer uh, coming as God's redeemed and adopted child to worship him. But it really becomes walking through the motions and watching and then hoping perhaps maybe for feelings or, or things to come out of that. So even in, even in a situation where someone might be in a setting where everything to the best of everyone's ability, by God's grace, the worship is biblical. Even there in our hearts, we could still be in a place where, where we're just running through the motions and we're either cold or perhaps we're even just, someone might come and just, I just want to see what's happening. Like, this is kind of crazy. This is wild. What are these people doing? So don't think that only others could be snared by this entertainment. I mean, we, we also... Can, can be grabbed by that and tempted by it as well. So biblical worship is God-focused. Uh, entertainment is more of a, a, a you-focused, a me-focused, a person-focused. Uh, be a difference between those. Uh, entertainment is mainly a monologue. We're receiving, whereas biblical worship is a dialogue. It's one of the things that you may notice in our worship services that there is, if you as you work through the our service, you'll notice there's a back and forth between God and his people. Um, we're going to go through the service here in a, in a moment, and you'll see that. But, uh, but there's that, that back and forth that's happening. Just think about the way our worship service starts. God calls us to worship. So God is the one that invites us to come into his presence. And then we respond by praying and asking him to help us. And then we praise him in song. And then we confess our sins to him, and then he, through his word, uh, we receive his assurance of pardon, that, that promise of forgiveness from his word. There's a back and forth, and it keeps going. 
through the service. We see this back and forth, this covenantal dialogue between God and uh, his people. Uh, Biblical worship is is never meant to be dry. It's never meant to be meaningless. It's never meant to just be something that uh, we've settled into because of a tradition, uh, something that we just are doing because it it seems to be something that would grab the the attention of others or ourselves. Uh, But it is, humbly we, we say this, when we look at the regular principle, it is diving into God's Word and, and, and coming out after hundreds and hundreds of years and study in the church saying, particularly in, in our tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, saying we believe this is what God has said. He wants This is how he wants to be worshipped. And we say that very humbly because we're resting all this on God's Word, which we'll see uh, in a moment. But that's why we do what, what we do. John Calvin, he's one of the most influential Protestant reformers. And he wrote the two primary principles uh, to be understood in Christianity. So this is Calvin. Even unbelievers note him as being a, one of the mighty intellects of, uh, he may get stuck in philosophy by some, but of theologians. He's, he's well respected by, by most, even if they don't like what he wrote. But if you'll notice, like when there's works of history that oftentimes at least Calvin's Institutes will be included, just like Augustine's works will be included as well, and sometimes uh, some other big theologians. But, but John Calvin, when he wrote, there's two primary principles to be understood, two things about Christianity, and these are it. One, the mode in which God is duly worshipped, and two, the source of salvation. In fact, when when Calvin wrote about the need, of, when he wrote of the importance of the Reformation, one of the big things he wrote about, it wasn't just about, hey, we've got to recover soteriology. We've got to recover the understanding of salvation and the gospel. But he wrote just as much and was extremely focused on uh, the importance of recovering biblical worship. We've got to go back to the Scripture's church. We've got to reform worship. He's looking around at the church prior to the Reformation in the midst of that, and in particular that would be the Roman Catholic Church. He's saying we are so off from what the Bible says. It's not just that we have to recover the understanding of uh, justification by faith alone, but he was, we've got to worship God the way that God wants to be worshipped. This is so important. And oftentimes we don't think about that as Calvin being the theologian of, of worship, just as Calvin wrote much about the Holy Spirit, but that's a whole other thing. He doesn't get much credit for that as well. Now, of course, um, you might hear us use terms. We use terms to kind of pull things together. We refer to ourselves sometimes as Calvinists, not that we are followers of John Calvin, but just that just as uh, there's been great theologians that help us and titles and names get given to things. And so there is a system of theology that has been given this. But but setting that aside, Ian Hamilton, a a professor, a seminary I went to, he's an adjunct professor, he's a, a pastor over in Scotland. He wrote this. I mean, he's talking about Calvinism as we refer to it. Uh, Calvinism is natively experiential. I don't know if you've heard that term. It's kind of experiential experience. 
Before it is a theological system, Calvinism is deeply affectional, God-centered, cross-magnifying religion. A man may loudly trumpet his adherence to the distinctive tenets of Calvinism, but if his life is not marked by delighting God in and his gospel, his professed Calvinism is a sham. In other words, there's no such thing as dead Calvinism, such as a theological oxymoron, for one simple reason. Calvinism claims to be biblical religion, and biblical religion is not only profoundly theological, it's deeply experiential and engagingly affectional. Whether men and women claim to be a Calvinist, their lives and their ministries, uh, wherever men and women claim to be Calvinists, their lives and their ministries pulse with life, the life of living, spirit-inspired, Christ-glorifying, God-centered truth. This is the great feature of Calvin's Institutes and Owen's works. They're pulsating with life. Another old dead guy who's with Jesus now, B.B. Warfield from Old Princeton. Um, Worth reading. B.B. Warfield, the Presbyterian theologian, describes uh, Calvinists this way, that Calvinists are humble souls, who in the quiet of retired lives have caught a vision of God and his glory and are cherishing in their hearts that vital flame of complete dependence on him, which is the very essence of Calvinism. Humble souls who in the quiet of retired lives have caught a vision of God and his glory and are cherishing in their hearts that vital flame of complete dependence on him. That's the very essence of Calvinism. So if someone truly you know, holds to a Calvinistic, Reformed perspective, worship is important because it's, it's, like it's impossible to say you believe these things and not to be in, not perfectly, but to be in a growing awe and love for the Lord and wanting to worship him and to cry out to him and, and to enjoy the means of grace and, and covenant relationship with him. Worship, while experiential, is not about uh, necessarily how someone feels, but it's about faithfulness to how God says to worship. And and worship isn't only about doing what God says. It's also about obedience driven by love for the Lord. Again, Christ had a lot of problems with some of the religious leaders who were doing the things that they were told to do, but he called them whitewashed tombs. You're walking through the motions. You're empty inside. You're, you're walking through the motions with uncircumcised hearts, with, with no love for the Lord. Uh, Calvin had a... We'll walk away from Calvin in a minute, just, but I just thought about this. Uh, Calvin had a seal. A lot of the reformers had their own little seals, and, and Calvin's was a, was, his, was a hand holding up a heart. And basically, it was him symbolizing he was, he was giving his heart to the Lord. He loved God. He saw worship as being extremely important. So the triune God who reveals himself in the Bible is the object of worship. So that's important to remember. Um, If you ever find yourself in a situation where it's supposed to be worship, but God isn't the object, something's wrong. (laughs) You're not, this is not biblical worship. Uh, We worship God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. Uh, Worship is covenantal. We come to God the Father as his adopted children. We commune as a covenantal family. 
Uh, we sing Psalm 100. We read Psalm 100. But Psalm 100 gives us a good picture of, of worship. We see the purpose of worship, of adoring and serving God, communing with him, uh, learning from him. I'm going to read Psalm 100. It's not one, Psalm 119. So five verses. This is a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come in his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. So we see a couple of things here just in Psalm 100. It gives us a picture of, of worship. We see communion with God. We see adoration and praise of God. And we see edification, God, to his, his people. So verse 3 and 5, we see the communion aspect between God and his people. And then verses 1, 2, and 4, we see this adoration and praise from God's people to God. And then in verse 3, we see the edification God to his his people uh, in worship. Now, I know we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and we're in the the Second Commandment. And so, someone might say, oh, this is great. There's a lot of Old Covenant stuff. But we're in the New Covenant, right? So it's not just in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, where we see this picture that God tells us how he's to be worshipped. But it's in the, the New Covenant as well, the New Testament as well. Uh, we read in Acts and in the, in the epistles that uh, the New Covenant Church gathered to worship on, on the Lord's Day, uh, Sunday. So we get that. So right there we have one aspect that's clearly done. We, we grab the understanding of the ordinary means of grace from Acts. You remember we went through that, oh wow, many moons ago. Um, but it talks about how the church was gathered together at the temple and uh, they were enjoying word, prayer, and sacrament fellowship of the saints. It's ordinary means of grace right there, right there at the, the very beginning of the New Covenant Church, encapsulated right there. And that's the foundation uh, for New Covenant uh, worship. Jesus fulfills the types and elements peculiar to the Old Covenant worship that pointed uh, to him. Um, as we've talked about, we don't we went through this in our introduction. We don't follow the old covenant sacrificial system. Uh, we don't follow the old calendar of feast. Uh, we don't hold to the old covenant sacraments. The Lord has given us new covenant sacraments that, that are connected, uh, correspond to those. We have signs and seals for the new covenant, just as there were signs and seals for the, for the old covenant. But from the beginning, the new covenant church continued enjoying the ordinary means of grace and worship. And as I was quoting, I'll read it now, Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In the temple there, ordinary means of grace, word, prayer, sacrament, fellowship of the saints all together. And then we see Jesus explains the character of new covenant worship and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in John uh, chapter 4. Now you can read all through this chapter, Jesus' interaction with the uh, the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well. And in this interaction, uh, Jesus is laying down uh, principles for new covenant worship. He's explaining uh, the movement from old covenant to new uh, covenant worship. 
I'm not going to read the entire uh, chapter, but just a, a portion here, uh, verse starting in verse 19 and then go down to about 26. So they're, they're interacting just to set this up. And, and the, if you've read this before, um, the, this woman's had like five, four or five husbands. There's some things that are going on. She's a, a Samaritan. And Jesus is speaking to her, and he very clearly understands everything about her, and she gets that immediately. And so that's where we jump in here on, on uh, verse 19. The woman said to him, being Jesus, uh, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet, because Jesus had just told her a bunch of things about herself that would be impossible to know. Sir, I see, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. A woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So we, there's a couple things here, but one, I don't want us to miss this. We think about you know, what is it that God is seeking. We read in verse 23, the Father is spiritual. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. The Father is redeeming people that they might worship him. God has saved you that you might worship him, come into that covenantal relationship with him. He desires that. And that is the purpose of the church. We have a mission, that's to make disciples of Christ, but our purpose is to glorify God, to worship him. So Jesus reiterates the regular principle of worship when he talks about the new covenant, worship being in spirit and uh, truth. So we have a few moments uh, left, and, and I'm going to try to hit a little bit here on understanding corporate worship at Christ Church. Again, I'm going to expand this out in the future, but just hitting things, giving us a, a little bit of a, an overview and, and hitting it here. Our attitude in corporate worship is an attitude of reverence, awe, thanksgiving, and joy. We think about it as we gather together. So now we're talking about how do we apply this directly here to Christ Church. So we want to promote an attitude when we come together to worship. Uh, one of, of reverence and awe, but thanksgiving and joy. So, reverence and awe, thanksgiving and joy. I would be saddened if we left any of those out. So if we, we decided that we weren't going to have thanksgiving, we weren't going to have joy, we weren't going to have reverence, we weren't going to have awe pray by God's grace that we would bring all those things together so that we could glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our corporate worship is led by elders. Um, if you think about who's the worship leaders of Christ Church, it's the elders. Right now, that's me. The other temporary elders aren't here very often. Um, so you're teaching elder. Pastor John is the worship leader. Um, we have folks who help us 
in worship with accompanying and doing different things. But the worship leaders are the elders. The congregation is active and involved throughout corporate worship. That's one of the things that I hope we all understand. Like when we think about worship, we say, oh, well, the, el- you know, the pastor's doing a lot. Well, the elders are leading the congregation in worship. But the congregation is very active. Everyone here, we are very active in this dialogue with God back and forth. If, if, if y'all aren't active, there's not a lot happening. Half of the service is going to happen. We're not going to be able to dialogue uh, with God. Everyone, whether it's men, women, boys, girls, everyone is participating in our worship services in different aspects of our prayers, our confessions, our singing, our giving, our listening. All that's happening. So I hope you realize like, you're really active when you worship, when you come and worship Christ Church. And hopefully it's something that's gripping your heart and you're active to the point that you're not finding yourself bored. Um, I mean, I understand that's a temptation. We get tired. We've had a hard week. Things Perhaps maybe Pastor John's sermon is not as exciting as it is. But we pray for unction that the Spirit would be driving messages home. But, uh, but we are all involved in engaging Communicant members are participating in the Lord's Supper. All of our members have been baptized. Some help and accompany, as I mentioned, uh, whether that's helping in our singing, um, whether that's playing instruments. We're very soon going to have some folks helping us with the singing, setting the right you know, notes and tones. Those accompaniment, well, the elders believe, is going to be very helpful. So that's under the oversight and leadership of the elders. We're excited about that, helping the congregation. Uh, to engage and worship better. So, kind of what I'm driving at is the congregation, when we're together worshiping like this, you can't, you shouldn't take an entertainment aspect. Like, there's stuff going on that you're involved with, particularly those who have children or grandchildren with you. Uh, There's a lot for the kids to be involved in. Like, uh, there are some things that they're going to be watching, but there are a lot of stuff for the kids to be doing. And so, you know, Maybe they're, maybe our little ones that are with us, and we'll pray that God will keep giving us more and more little ones. But maybe sometimes their involvement's not exactly as uh, the same level as we are. You know, we might recite something at this level, and maybe one of the little kids is going to yell there. I mean, you know, whatever it may be, like we're going to have patience with them, and they may rustle a little bit. We're going to love on them and be patient, thankful that the little lambs are with us. But even the children, we pray by God's grace, are involved. When we speak of worship style, it's more about worship attitude than I think what the average person in the church thinks out in the world. And that is uh, literally when people talk about what's the style of worship, what they really want to know is what's the, what kind of music do you guys have? I mean, that's typically what people are mean when they say what's the style. But I want us to think of style being our attitude, not necessarily the what we're singing a song, we're singing a classic hymn, we're singing a, a modern worship song, but it's our attitude. Uh, that's the style. Uh, biblical worship being focused on God is driven by his word, the Bible, the ordinary means of grace. So think of it this way. We read the word, pray the word, preach the word, sing the word, see the word. A lot of word. Bible is, is key. So we read the word, Revelations 1-3. We pray the word, Psalm 143. We preach the word, 1 Timothy 4-13, 2 Timothy 4, 1-5. We sing the word, Colossians 3, 16-17.
when we see the word. 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 34. So I'm going to close out here. I'm going to go through our, our liturgy. When I say go through our liturgy, literally, because of our time, I'm just going to like literally read through the liturgy and attach to it some scripture passages to give you an idea of where we're drawing our, our understanding of this. And hopefully even if we read it you know, in your mind, be thinking about that dialogue back and forth between God and his people, God and his people. And there are numerous Bible verses, but these are just, I tried to give one to each. So we move through. Um, towards the end, there's a couple things I'll mention to you. You'll probably notice we don't do those every Lord's Day. Uh, but if everything were to be done in one service, we have almost 22 different things going on. So we start off with a call to worship. We see that in Psalm 100. Then we have a prayer of adoration and invocation. We see that in Psalm 143. Then we have our hymn of adoration. And sometimes it's a psalm of adoration, but we have a, a singing praises of adoration. We see that in Colossians 3, 16, 17. We then move to our confession of sin, our prayer of confession of sin that we all do together aloud. We, we see that in Isaiah 6, 5. And then we have our assurance of pardon, forgiveness from God's word. We see that in Isaiah 6, 6 to 7. So in that Isaiah chapter 6 section, we see right there the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. And then we come to our confession of faith. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then we have a hymn of praise, which um, we typically do here, the doxology and the Gloria Patri. We go back and forth uh, with those. Uh, Colossians 3, 16, 17. Uh, we have an offertory prayer. We see it in Psalm 95. The collection of our offerings as God's people. We see it in 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Uh, and then we have, whether you want to call it the pastoral prayer, the long prayer, depending upon uh, how you'd like to think of it. I, I hope that it would be uh, long, not in a tedious sense, but, but long. And um, to me, it's very short, but I understand it might, it could be long if we're not participating in the prayer. But then we conclude, conclude with the Lord's Prayer together, Acts 2.42. Uh, Old Testament continuous reading, Revelation 1.3. New Testament continuous reading, 1 Timothy uh, 4.13. Our psalm of preparation. Uh, typically we do a psalm here. Colossians 3.16.17 again. There's also some places of Ephesians we see. Uh, prayer of illumination before the reading and preaching of the word, Acts 2.42. Uh, our sermon scripture reading, 1 Timothy 4.13. Our the preaching of the word, 2 Timothy 4, 1, 5. Uh, then the prayer of commitment after the reading and preaching of the word, Acts 2, 42 again. And then we have three items that are, we don't do every Lord's Day, but when we do the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we see that in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Sacrament of baptism, we see that in Matthew 28. And then the taking of membership vows, Psalm uh, 22. Uh, hymn of response, Colossians 3, 16, 17. Could be a hymn. Uh, we typically put a what we refer to as a spiritual song here. We try to, in each service, have a classic hymn, a psalm, and a, a more modern spiritual song uh, that we might be able to sing. And that typically is the pattern. We keep it in, but we mix that up sometimes. And then the benediction, number 6, 24, 26. We see the benediction there. So that's just a quick run-through of what our liturgy which is just the order of service. Everybody has a liturgy. All churches have a liturgy, whether they call it a liturgy or not. Even churches that say, we're going to show up and just do whatever the Spirit leads us to. Well, that's their liturgy. It's just one sentence. It's like, we're going to do what the Spirit leads us to. That's their liturgy. So everyone has a order of service, and that's ours. So 
again, well, in the future, I'd look forward to unpacking this more um, so we can better understand it, dive into some things. Next time we're together, Lord willing, we're going to look at the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I think we're going to enjoy that one because it's more than just stubbing your toe and cursing. Like, uh, there's a lot to that commandment. So I think we'll enjoy that. Lord willing, we'll be able to, to look at that uh, next week together. All right, well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you are the one true and living God who is, who is worthy to be worshipped. We're thankful for Christ and the redemption that we enjoy in him and, and for the spirit who applies it to us and indwells us. Lord, thank you that we have the opportunity to understand how it is that you, do, you call your people to worship and, and that we are able to look to your word and, and see, Lord, how you want us to worship. And yet, at the same time, uh, Lord, help us to be humble to know that we are doing the best we can to read your word and understand how it is you desire to be humble or desire to be worshiped. So please, Lord, be merciful to us that we might uh, have hearts that are overflowing uh, with reverence, awe, thanksgiving, and joy when we come into your presence. Our Lord, we love you and, the, and we desire to worship you. We love worshiping you. So we ask that you would particularly pour your your blessings out upon Christ's church as we gather to worship, that we might partake of this taste of heaven, uh, that we might understand the full realities of this supernatural worship that's happening, that as we come and, and as you call us to worship, that, that heaven comes down and, and, and explodes upon us and we get to participate in the worship of the angelic host and, and the church triumphant. Lord, may we never be bored with that, but may it grip us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.